0: Welcome to the Apologies Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Whistle Fenton. I created this podcast to promote healing and repair. Each episode, I invite my guests to share an apology that they've been carrying. The only rule is that it has to be for a person they are no longer in contact with. My dream is that at least some of these apologies might actually reach their intended recipients. I also hope this podcast reinforces the idea that as different as we may seem, we're all just people and we all carry stuff. So with each guest, we'll first spend some time just learning who and how they are before hearing their apology. Today we'll be talking with Chuck Eastman. He's a veteran who retired from the U.S. Army in 2017 after 20 years of service. Chuck is currently the Director of Strategic Partnerships for Stop Soldier Suicide and lives in Cary, North Carolina with his wife, Marjorie, and son, Hank. Chuck, welcome to the Apologies Podcast.
1: Thanks so much. It's fun to be here.
0: When we first connected, you, I think in your email, joked that as a Canadian, you apologize for everything. (laughs) What other Canadian stereotypes would you say that you embody?
1: Um, I, I think that's probably the biggest. I, I It's kind of a joke that if I bump into somebody and it's obviously their fault, I end up saying sorry or excuse me or pardon me. I don't know why I do that. But I think because my mom's Canadian, that's just kind of the nature of how I was brought up. And uh, yeah, it's, and I still have family in Canada, too. And they're all very much the same.
0: I told you that I grew up in Buffalo, so... I feel like I get to be called an honorary Canadian because I spent so much of my childhood in Canada. Do you love nature? And- oh,
1: yeah. Yeah. So I, I grew up in Maine and I probably spent more time outdoors than I spent indoors. I kind of joke that my my parents raised me as a free range chicken. They'd like open the door in the morning, send me out the door and i will be back for dinner. Yeah, I always grew up doing outdoor activities. I kind of I joke with my wife because she's from Southern California, so she doesn't like the winter in Maine, but I actually love the winter in Maine. I would do more snowmobiling and skiing and snowshoeing, build snow caves. It's always something that I've really enjoyed, which is what I kind of thought what I would enjoy in the military. But the military just completely took the fun out of going out in the woods because it wasn't <laughs> as enjoyable.
0: You weren't building snow forts, I'm guessing. And, and we'll talk about that. Yeah, we actually I actually interviewed another Mainer who was also a veteran a few interviews ago, and he Uh, Yeah, he had a very similar childhood where he basically grew up living off the land in Maine. And so do I remember right that you saying your parents were kind of hippies who drove around in a van? Is that accurate?
1: Uh, Very much so that they were hippies. There is a family photo of my dad with some nylon rope for a belt. He was like the town doctor. Like my grandfather was the town doc in the same town. My dad was the town doctor in the same town. And he was super overly aware of it, the perception of him being a doctor. So he went out of his way to drive the biggest pieces of junk that he could. I mean, I was in high school, so that was in the nineties and he were driving a truck from the seventies that we put three transmissions in two engines, literally the truck broke in half when we were driving up to our camp, like the, the frame just snapped and you, you like step back and look at it. It was like the shape of a V. So it's like a little bit of PTSD from my upbringing because they were so over the top, you know, trying to make an appearance that I don't know. It's very confusing now that I look back at it. But yeah, they're definitely hippies.
0: So your your mom's Canadian, your parents were hippies. How did that end up with you joining the U.S. Army and serving for twenty years, no less?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Great question. I'm sure my parents are asking the same question. So I had a childhood friend. We were friends since I was three. So he had, well, I had three older sisters, so I didn't have any boys to hang out with. And I didn't like living in one of those neighborhoods where you can go play with the neighbor. I literally had fields and cows to you know, entertain myself outdoors. So my friend Nathan had six older brothers. So I thought that was super cool. His dad served in the Korean War as a Marine and his brother was a Marine in the first Gulf War. So I remember on Memorial Day, this is regular Memorial day parade and his brother, Philip had just returned from the first Gulf war. And he was in the parade with his dress blue uniform. And I remember like yesterday, like shaking his hand and he's got those white gloves and the, the, the dress blue uniform. And I just like looked up to him with such reverence and Nathan and I, we used to play army all the time. We dress, I, you, you can't find a Halloween picture of me. That's not in some sort of camouflage or carrying a wooden gun or something like that. So it was, even though it wasn't part of my upbringing, it very much was part of my upbringing because it was kind of like another family that I spent almost an equal amount of time with and enlisting really was, I'm the first person to enlist in my family since the civil war. Uh, So my dad was a flight. surgeon, My grandfather was a a psychologist in world war II. So there was a lot of raising of eyebrows and my family were like, what are you doing? And no one really understood what I was doing until after nine 11, that was you know, a little more clear on what my path was in the military.
0: Do you think you understood what you were doing or what it would mean to you?
1: Um, I look back on those days and it, it, it makes a whole lot more sense that the human brain isn't fully developed until your early mid twenties, because I made some decisions back then that I look back on. I was like, well, that was really dumb. Like I had an opportunity to go to Maine Maritime Academy on a full ride scholarship. Turns out I didn't like boats or the water or the ocean. So I gave up that opportunity. But my friend that I went to school with is a captain in the U.S. Navy right now, which is an 06, which that's a significantly different retirement pension than what I got as a warrant officer. And I had an opportunity to go to West Point. I mean, it was just like those early 20s. I just kind of like floundered around a little bit. And in hindsight, that made complete sense to me. And I remember these adults just looking at me like, what are you doing like when I when I left West Point prep, and they were like, "Why are you leaving?" I was doing fine academically. I was a commonest list and dean's list, and they're like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "Nope, I want to be a ranger." They're like, "I don't understand it," but it all made sense to me then. In hindsight, I I kind of question how smart those decisions were.
0: What was it that drove you to want to be a ranger?
1: I don't I don't really know, to be honest. I remember being in high school and looking through like those big catalogs was like the guidance counselors would have. And I was always looking, I wanted to be a jet pilot. I wanted to fly f 16s in the air force. So I wanted to go to the air force Academy more than anything, but I also kept on flipping to this one page that showed a special forces soldier. And I can picture the soldiers like in a swamp. And he's got the old school, like L shaped flashlight with a red lens and a camo on his face. And I thought, man, that looks cool. It was kind of like a, the idea of doing something that's, Difficult, Somewhat selective to get to that point. So when I got to my first unit in the infantry, my first team leader was a Ranger from 1st Ranger Battalion. And he was like completely different personality than anybody else in that unit because this wasn't a Ranger unit. So, I mean, he was training us. He was teaching us how to tie knots and his expectations and the discipline. I, I really latched onto that and I enjoyed it, which again, my mom still doesn't know how I, Did that because I don't like being told what to do, but I somehow fell in lockstep with this extreme level of discipline. So then, when I was at West Point Prep, there was another first sergeant that was a ranger. He had parachuted into Panama in '89. So I looked up to him immensely. And then it was just kind of like a series of events that, you know, I got lucky to get the Rangers. But it was just the desire to do something different and difficult. And this was all before 9/11, so I didn't really know what. Going to war would entail it all seems cool on paper. In reality, it's it's war. I I wouldn't do anything different. I I mean I go back and think about that sometimes. And yeah, it's they're not the best decisions that I made in those like 18 to 24-year-old brain, but I wouldn't go back and change it.
0: What would you say to that 18 to 24-year-old self of yours about what to expect or just how to proceed?
1: What would I say to myself? I guess I would say just enjoy the ride because I didn't know what the journey was going to be at that point. I had a kind of crazy, unusual army career going from Rangers to working with the JSOC commanding general to flying Apaches and then Little Birds, the 160th. And it was just, it was a fun journey. And I think I lost a lot of memories. Like I didn't take enough pictures like I have like zero pictures of me in the one sixtieth. We weren't supposed to take pictures when we were deployed, but everybody did, but I was always a stickler for following the rules. But I would just, I would just try to tell myself to enjoy the journey and, you know, either keep a journal or take pictures just to be able to go back and remember some of the better days. Cause you know, even though we go to war, they're not all bad days. There's a lot of incredible funny memories and antics and jokes and, tricks we play on each other while deployed. And, you know, that just that that type of stuff never happened when we weren't deployed. So it was like an ability to kind of let loose a little bit.
0: Do you still have connection with with people you served with?
1: I, I absolutely do. My one of my closest friends is my son's godfather. We served together in JSOC. He went one route in special operations and I went to flight school. We just managed to stay connected over the years and we were literally texting back and forth yesterday. And we were joking that if anybody was to read our texts, they wouldn't know if we absolutely hated each other or we were brothers or what it would be because we're just rotten to each other. But I think, I think that level of friendship and camaraderie comes from going through something difficult together and being part of a team. And I don't think that military is the only place you get that. I would imagine that firefighters have the same bond and brotherhood and sisterhood that you would in the military. It's just that the military you're you're kind of more likely to have tough days depending on what you do, but going through a shared difficult journey is it it just makes it more conducive to be able to stay connected, finding things in common and having perspective. Like when you go through something difficult, you can always look back on it or if or if you're having a bad day, you know, later on, you can always look back on it and say, "Well, it could be worse." Or you can go back to that friend and make a joke about it. Like he and I still joke about, like I had, I had met first met my wife. Well, she's obviously, obviously, not my wife then, but I was deployed to Iraq and Derek was supposed to relieve me. He was at Fort Bragg and he called me, he said, Hey, I'm sorry. I, I got bit by a Brown recluse and I, uh, I can't come on this deployment and I'd already planned like this date night. I'd, like we're going to Kenny Chesney, we're going to Charleston, South Carolina. It was well, Kenny Chesney and Keith Urban. And I was like, God, oh, you gotta be kidding me, Derek. And then I told the Sergeant Major and Sergeant Major was in on it. And they did this for like a week to me. And then
0: <laughs> after about a week,
1: Derek like started laughing. He's like, I'm sorry, man. I I didn't get bitten by a spider, but they just, they left me hanging for a week. Oh, um, wow. So it's, it's like jokes like that. You know, you, you build a friendship and a camaraderie that, it's really second to none. And it's, it's tough to replicate. Like, you know, I have friends in the neighborhood now, but it's just, it, it's the, the amount that we have in common is much less. Whereas the, the, the friends that I have from the military, it's a special kind of bond. Like my roommate uh, that woke me up on 9-11, he just retired as a command sergeant major of the Ranger regiment. He was my first team leader. Then when I get back, got back from Ranger school, we ended up being roommates with another guy and he woke me up on 9-11 And he said, Chuck, we're going to war. And that was everything changed at that point, obviously. But I still stay in touch with Kurt. Just, you know, really, really phenomenal guy.
0: How long had you been in or I don't know, where were you in your career when 9-11 happened?
1: Uh, Year four. Yeah. So it was only my fourth year. uh, And I'd been in the Rangers for maybe a couple of years, maybe a year and a half. Yeah, year and a half when 9-11 happened.
0: How did that change the trajectory or change? I guess I want to back up and say kind of how did you get from when you started to maybe take us up to 9-11? Like you joined wanting to be ranger. I think you said at that point you were ranger. So so how did you get started? Like what was your first job in the army?
1: Uh, so I'll even go back to my recruiter because my recruiter does play a, a role to play in the story. Cause I ended up serving with his brother years later and I didn't even know it. Uh, so I went to my recruiter and I was probably the easiest recruit he's ever had. Cause I walked in his office. I said, Sergeant Ross, I want to be an airborne ranger. He said, great, get in line. And I was like, what does that mean? He was like, everybody wants to be an airborne ranger. So here's what you do. You go to your first unit as an infantryman and you just tell your team leader, you want to be a ranger. And that, That'll make it happen. They'll sign the, it's a form called a 4187. It's a personnel request. And it's that easy. I was like, great. Awesome. Where can I sign? So I signed up on like, an, it was even 11 x-ray contract. So that means I didn't even know what I was going to do in the infantry. I didn't know if it was going to be a mortarman or an infantryman or back then they have an 11 Mike, which is a, a light armored vehicle infantryman. So I just went to Fort Benning. No idea. Then I started talking to these other guys that had these contracts to go to Ranger Regiment after basic training. I'm like, how'd you get that? You're like, well, oh, your, your recruiter should have set you up with that. So I started to realize I'd been duped. Oh. Uh, so I, I graduated basic, went to my first unit and going back to that team leader that had served in the Ranger Regiment. I said, Specialist Garland, I want to go to the Ranger Regiment. Uh, where can I sign a 41 seven He just started laughing. He's like, who told you you can do this? I'm like my recruiter, and he was like, "You are such an idiot." He's like, "You're not going to go to range judgment from here uh, because we need you here. Your needs the army now." So tough luck. Uh, so I was in 25th ID or Infantry Division up in Fort Lewis, Washington. Anyone that has ever been to the Pacific Northwest in January knows that it is the most one of the most miserable places on earth raining every single day. Well, it rained every day from January to about June, May, June. And being an infantryman, that meant we were out in the woods, we were walking. And I was just soaked and wet and miserable. I was like, man, this sucks. I'm like, I did not sign up for this. So I started kind of, I'd go down to the library on the weekend and look at options. And I found out that I could apply to West Point as an enlisted soldier. So like, well, hell it beats sleeping in the puddle up, you know, the training area in Fort Lewis. So I applied to West Point and it turns out the, the last time I took my SATs, my senior year, I got a pretty decent grade to the point that they told me I was accepted to West Point with li- literally minimal application. There's no congressional nomination. There was just like a commander's recommendation and some basic paperwork filled out. And I told the the major that had called me, I was like, sir, I, I haven't done math. And like, two years, which seems like forever back then. he's like, well, okay, well, we have a prep school in uh, New Jersey. I said, okay, well, I'll give it a shot. So I went to Fort Monmouth for West Point prep. Again, I was on commonest list and Dean's list. And it was, it was an interesting process. They really focused on math and English because it was a lot of uh, sports prospects that may have not gotten good enough grades in high school, but West Point really wanted them on their sports teams. So they were able to get them to the prep school, teach them the basics to get their ACT and SAT back up. Uh, and then they could go play sports. And then there was the active duty knuckleheads like me that went that route. And for whatever reason, like I said, that first sergeant inspired me. I had 21 year old brain moment. I decided I wanted to go enlisted because I wanted to be a ranger so bad that the best chance, the best probability me being a ranger was being enlisted. Because each platoon, you have like one platoon leader that's an officer for about every 30 to 35 enlisted guys. So I thought just doing the math, if I really wanna be a Ranger, the best way is to go enlisted. So I, I filled out my resignation paperwork, I took it to my attack officer, and he was like, what in the hell are you doing? He's like, you don't understand what you're giving up here. And I was like, well, yes, sir, I'm ready to go, let's go. So then I ended up going to the, the First Sergeant, and he said, well, what do you wanna do, Eastman? I said, I, I wanna to go to the Ranger Battalion, First Sergeant. He said, okay picks up a phone call, he calls someone, I don't know to this day, must've been one of his buddies that he served with. He's like, hey, I got this hard charger here, wants to be a ranger, he's got good grades, all right, let me know. Because every uh, every other person that resigned that happened to be an infantryman was sent to Korea. That was like the easiest fill for them, they just sent them straight to Korea. So this first sergeant went out of his way to get me an assignment to, to go to at least get a shot. So like two weeks later, he puts orders on my desk, to go to airborne school and then to rip rip was a ranger indoctrination program. Now they call it RASP totally different programs from what they were when I went through to what it is today. But I went to airborne school in July of 99 and then uh, went to rip after that. Rip was only three weeks long at that point. And then I went to third range battalion, which was right across the street from where rip was held. That's where Kurt Donaldson gave me my in brief. He's my first team leader. And then he was the one that woke me up on nine 11. So between that initial in brief, I was just, I don't know, a new guy. I didn't have a Ranger tab. So I ended up doing a lot of pushups. Uh, we did PT all the time and we trained for, for forever, but training was so different then. Cause we weren't at war. It was like training was kind of fun. Like we'd go out to the, the training site and we'd train hard during the day, train hard at night. And we'd build a big campfire. And we just sit around and tell stories and laugh. And it was kind of like a voice club, if you will. And then when Kurt woke me up on 9 11, everything really changed from a perspective of what we're doing, why we're doing it, and how to do it effectively and to, to make sure that everyone's trained to the best of our abilities. Like it, it was almost like we didn't have enough time to get ready. Even though we had years and years to train and practice, like we just didn't have enough time.
0: So now we're at 9-11. Where'd you go from there in your service?
1: So since I was in 3rd Ranger Battalion, the Ranger Battalions rotate on a cycle. They call it a Ranger, like a readiness force level. So like RF-1 is what we were on. So readiness force level one, we had to be on a recall status to be anywhere in the world within a certain number of hours. So when nine eleven happened, we thought we're going straight to war. So everybody raced into work. We dumped out our duffel bags, which had all our camouflage, like woodland camo stuff. we put in all our desert camo and we waited and we waited and we ended up going to the field the next day instead. So we went to the field for two weeks training. So all of like the news coverage, the newspapers, the replays on the news, I completely missed it all. I was sleeping in the woods for the two weeks following 9-11. And then we deployed to... Our they call it an ISB, Intermediate Staging Base, like October 12th. And then on October 19th, we parachuted into Afghanistan. It, w- it was really uh, kind of like a show of force. I mean, the objective was valid and it was part of a larger operation that didn't quite make the news, but it was really like like right after like D-Day, Doolittle did a raid uh, with a bunch of B-24s. They sailed them across the Pacific and they bombed deep into Japan. Tactically made no sense, but it showed Americans that we were doing something in response to the attack on D Day. So, our jump into Afghanistan was very much the same way. Uh, you know, it was a month and, you know, a month, five weeks after 9 11. And they had like the public affairs team. So, they had the cameras and they were recording it. They got a lot of footage that they wouldn't have normally shot for a combat operation, but they did it to show Americans we were doing something. So we were the first boots in the ground, if you will. There were some special forces teams that were infilled to the north and there was some CIA activity that had already been going on. But yeah, so we were the first boots in the ground. And then we, we left the objective after like four and a half hours. We weren't there very long, came back. And then they sent us to another staging location where we like pulled security for like 12 hours a day in different shifts. And it was just like the most boring period of my life. And it gave me a lot of time to think and reflect so when we got back to the States, we ended up going straight to uh, JRTC, the Joint Readiness Training Center, which is notoriously miserable to, to do. But while we were there, Robert's Ridge happened and everybody thought we got bin Laden. We, we thought the war was done after that. We thought it was a very short-lived war. And then a job came available to go to JSOC. My platoon sergeants told us to go ask our squads and I said, I'll do it. He's like, no, 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 Eastman, I want you to go ask your guys. I'm like, no, I'll do it. He was like, "He sure? I wasn't was married, wasn't pinned down at all. I was like, let's go.
0: So once you're in JSOC, what, I don't know if like highlights or cliff notes, I mean, 20 years is a lot to cover, but so what did the rest of your service look like?
1: JSOC was a, that was a fun experience because I got to work hand in hand with a two-star general. So I was a staff sergeant at the time and I got to see a perspective of what really happens at that level of leadership and command decision. And I realized that me as a Sergeant, in the Ranger Regiment, I was very much a small fish in the sea. There was some other uniquely skilled people and units out there. So it gave me a lot of humility. It was a, it was a great time because I had unlimited resources from a perspective of like pursuing like next steps for my career. Like the, the, the JSOC commanding general drivers typically go on to do pretty good stuff for the rest of your career. They either go to flight school or they go to special forces or they go to other special missions units. They never really go back to the Ranger Battalion. So it was a, it was a great opportunity that I look back on those years fondly. And it was from there that I went to flight school. Uh, so I flew Apaches, went to Fort Hood out of Fort Hood. We had deployed to Iraq in 07. So November of 07. Uh, and then we came back in January of 09. So that was a 15 month deployment. That was, that was a very long trip. like, Literally, like the country changes. Like when you're gone that long, you oh come God. back and you're like, "This is weird. I don't remember this." Like restaurant food tastes different. Like fast food is just disgusting and salty. Like when I left, there were no iPhones. When I came back, there were iPhones. So my wife was telling me about this iPhone thing. I'm like, "What's an iPhone?" So she got it of me. I'm like, "I like my flip phone." But after that, I assessed for the one sixtieth. So the one sixtieth is a Special Operation Aviation, Aviation Regiment. And I assessed for AH-6 Little Birds, which if you've never seen it, it's like the Magnum PI helicopter, paint it black, put guns and rockets on it. That's an AH-6 Little Bird. It was the most fun and difficult thing to fly all at the same time. And I did that for the rest of my career. And that was a, that was a super fun period of my life. But it was uh, it was intense and it was long. You know, there were did 10 deployments doing that. And then in that period of time, my son was born. My son was born with an infant cancer called neuroblastoma. So I was deploying and dealing with cancer. I literally redeployed the day before he had a surgery to remove his cancer. So it was like my the pace of life is just like it was grueling. So I, when I was at 20 years, I knew it was time for me
0: to get out. That is I didn't know your son uh, had cancer. He's
1: 11 and healthy. So i f- want to make sure I fast forward to that part, but it was a massive blessing. We found it in utero because our doctor gave us a due date that wasn't matching up because I was deploying like every other month. So we're like, nope, it's not due then. So, you know, we were asking the doctor, like, how do you determine due dates? I'm like, well, it's a combination of head circumference and leg length. Like my wife's six feet tall. Like "Uh, she has long legs and I have a gigantic head. So is it possible that you might be wrong? So they went and did another ultrasound at 37 weeks and that's when they found the mass. So it was just a period of monitoring it for like six months. And then when I was deployed, I called my wife after, you know, our daily set of missions and she was like, they did another scan and it's it's big enough to the point where they want to remove it. So they removed it out of a little six month body. It was the size of a baseball oh and it's it's a really dangerous cancer because it was on his adrenal gland so it's really tough to detect until it's too big. So it's it's, it's like an 85% mortality rate when it's undetected. So we are just incredibly fortunate that they were able to remove it. We had like one of the nation's leading doctors for a pediatric surgeon. Our pediatric oncology team was one of the best in the world. It was just so much lined up. I'm gonna say we couldn't have planned it any better, but the outcome couldn't have been any better.
0: I also wanna give a shout out to your wife cause I know deployment's hard. But it's also i think hard in a different way to be the one at home especially at home dealing with a baby with cancer that's rough
1: yeah it's incredibly rough she carries so much of the weight for so long and i didn't understand what it was like until she deployed so she deployed before we had our son and she was gone for 10 months and like it's a whole new level of like i know what she's doing like she sent me a picture Like she kind of like pulled the wool over my eyes. Like I'm an intelligence commander. I'm just going to like review reports. And she sent me a picture through the bulletproof glass on an MRAP, which is one of those, it's the vehicle to drive around. And I could see it's the bulletproof glass. And then there's a robot on a road. And I know they only deploy the robots. And if there's an IED and then there's a 58 Kiowa flying above the road, I'm like, they don't just send aircraft to a location when everything is hunky dory. So it just, it, it really elevated the, the risk and the concern. And, but yeah, I, I, I gave a special shout out to obviously my wife, my parents as well. When I, at my retirement ceremony, cause like I, I literally put them through hell for 20 years and they were just constantly worried about me. And I just, I didn't see it that way. I didn't understand it. I was doing my job and that was my career. And that's what I was, that was my calling. But boy, I, I look at my son now and I'm like, Holy crap. If he joins the military and goes on deployments, I'm, I'll be sleepless. I, I don't even know what I'm going to do with myself. I mean, I was my parents' only son. I'm the last Eastman. You know, what if I died over there? There'd be no more Eastman lineage from that the side of the family. That's all stuff they thought about. I never thought about it, but it was, I put them through a lot.
0: Well, so you talked about your retirement. So you're retired. You're doing different things now, which we're going to talk about, but that transition from military to civilian life can be challenging. And there are some, dismal stats listed on the Stop Soldier Suicide website, which we'll talk about that organization and your work with them in a minute. But what was that transition like for you?
1: So I consider myself, again, incredibly blessed and incredibly lucky because I was maybe a month out of retirement, sitting in the corner chair with a cup of coffee, mid-morning, just life is good, retired and chilling. And my wife's phone rings. And the conversation from what I could hear She's like, yeah, he is. Oh yeah. No. Okay. I'll have him reach out to you. So she hung up like, what was that? She's like, Oh, that was Jim Tully. The the guy that she knew from leadership Nashville. Uh, She's like, Jim, it might have an opportunity that you should reach out to him. And in in a month I had a a job doing business development with L3 Harris. Like I never even applied to the job. It was the craziest thing. I, I went from 20 years in the military. I had about a month off. And then I was in a suit spending my time either at conventions selling our services to other government contractors and the other military units. And I mean, I, I know the stats for transition from the military. I know how difficult it is for so many service members. So I look back at mine. I'm like, Holy cow, that was just unusual and a blessing.
0: How did you come to be involved with stop soldier suicide? Well, the,
1: the work I was doing at L3, was really interesting. I, but I spent a ton of time on the road. My headquarters was in Waco. I was in North Carolina. And my travel was probably 85%. So I literally went from deploying every other month or being TDY and gone and missing my family to now having a civilian job that I'm gone all the time and missing my family. And my son was five. And he's like, dad, I hate L3. And it just made it super hard. So I I ended up leaving. And I didn't have a great exit plan. I didn't have anything lined up. I literally took the summer of 2019 off and my son and I would go to the pool every day and we'd play pass and we'd go for bike rides. And, you know, reality dawned on me. I was like, well, yeah, I, I guess I should find a job now. So I reached out to Derek as I was like, dude, I gotta find something more meaningful that you know gives me a sense of purpose that I'm giving back somehow. He was like, you need to talk to Nick Black. And Nick Black was one of the co-founders of Stop Soldier Suicide. Uh, and Nick is a very charismatic, convincing person. And after about five minutes of talking to Nick, I'm like, Nick, I'm in. I'm like, I don't know how or where, but I want to be part of it. And then again, serendipity steps in, and the headquarters for stop soldier suicide is four and a half miles from where I lived. So I'm like, well, this is perfect. So it was uh it was kind of meant to be.
0: And what 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 is stop soldier suicide?
1: Uh, So Stop Soldier Suicide is a 501c3 nonprofit that we offer services for veterans and active duty service members that is very specific to addressing suicide risk. We have a scientific advisory committee that has advised us in how we build our service model to what it is today. Everything is evidence-based and based off of clinical modalities that have been proven to prevent uh, and reduce suicide. So we've served uh, over 4,000 clients at this point, And we haven't lost any current or former clients to suicide, which we know suicide is very complicated and very fickle. So that, that may not be a forever statistic, but to me, it gives me hope the the fact that, you know, I spent so much time fighting in a war and there was about you know, 7,000 plus service members that died in combat. There was, 30,000 plus that have died, post-9-11 veterans that have died by suicide. You know, it's like 4.3 times the number of vet- post-9-11 veterans that have died by suicide than combat. And I'm like, how is that not getting headlines? And I just, I know there's so many people struggling. And the fact that we have a, a service model that is working, that people are, their lives are changed. It's 100% free. It's 100% confidential. We have a 24-7 crisis line. We meet the veteran where they are for what their needs are whether that be, you know, along with suicide specific care, you know, what are are their additional needs? Do they they like equine therapy? Do they like golfing? Do they like fishing? You know, we arrange and we coordinate for all that. So there's kind of parallel efforts, you know, addressing suicide risk and managing suicide risk, and then helping them kind of address their Maslow's hierarchy of needs to get in a better place where they have a sense of purpose again, and they have meaning in their life. So it's it's an incredible organization to work with. I, I started at employee 19 in March of 2020, and now we're up to 80 plus. Uh, so we're we're growing. I don't want to say as fast as we can, but as strategically as we can to address veterans needs in all the states that we can.
0: And so if someone needs help, they can just call up or reach out or how does that work?
1: Yeah. So if I go to stopsoldiersuicide.org or stopveteransuicide.org there's a 24-7 number in the upper right. They can call that and then they'll get an initial screening uh, so that the people that they call will do a screener to assess for acute crisis. If they're in acute crisis, if necessary, but absolutely last resort, they'll arrange for like a mobile crisis team. Otherwise, they take down their basic contact information and their contact again within 24 hours to schedule their first consult with one of our wellness coordinators. And then from there, the wellness coordinator uh, takes it and they... You know, they can stay with us as long as they need. Our average length is about 8.6 months. Uh, We've had clients for two years before. It really depends on what their needs are. Also on the website, there's a get help button where you can, once you click get help, we'll say, is it for you or for family or friend? And once you, if it's for you, you fill out the same basic information, you click submit. And then within 15 minutes, you'll receive a call from the same people that are at the the 24 seven crisis center. Uh, So 24-7, you're either going to call a person or you're going to fill out an online form and you'll be contacted within 15 minutes. Uh, If it's for a family or a friend, it's a little more complicated because of privacy laws. We can't proactively reach out to a veteran without their consent. So if it's like a wife or a husband uh, or mom or whomever, uh, we talk them through how to talk to their loved one to get consent. You know, if they're in the other room, can we get them on the, can we get them on the phone? Can we get consent that way? And then from there, it's the exact same process. So once we get their consent, reach out to them for scheduling and then get them lined up with a wellness coordinator.
0: And so you said that in your civilian life, you'd been missing that sense of mission and feeling like you're doing something, you're part of something. Sounds like you've found that again.
1: I never, ever thought I would be in a nonprofit doing suicide prevention for veterans not in my wildest dreams that I ever think I'd be here. Nothing in my military career set me up for this. But when I learned the statistics and I learned that veterans are twice as likely to die by suicide, I just, I, there's so many stories of people that every veteran knows somebody that they served with that has died by suicide. You know, whether it be like you saw it coming a million miles away or it completely catches you off guard. It, it's just, it's so devastating for families and friends, and to know that I can be part of an organization that's doing something to prevent that, like it gives me a sense of purpose and meaning that I never thought I would find again. Like I I find myself, there are days that I would much prefer to work with a stop soldier suicide team than any of the coolest jobs I ever had in the military. And I worked with some pretty cool people and some pretty cool things. And our team is just such a great group of people that they're all aligned in the same mission. You know, every, I don't want to say everybody, but you know, they're all somehow touched by family members that were veterans. Some are lost survivors themselves that they lost a family member to suicide. It's just a very personal cause. And I, I, it's a job that I wake up every single day and I look forward to how can I make a difference? And, you know, who can we save today? It's, and I don't want to have like a savior complex because that's that's a dangerous rabbit hole to go down. But I, I feel confident in what we do. And I know that what we're doing is working.
0: This has been such a great conversation. I know we're just about out of time, but we have now reached apology time. And I know as we joked at the beginning, you apologize for everything, but... We're going to go for a more specific apology this time. So Chuck, what apology would you like to share?
1: So I had to think long and hard about this. And I finally came to who I would go back and apologize to if I could. So when I was in the 160th, we were doing missions out of Kandahar nearly every night when I was over there doing objectives, usually west of Kandahar, near Bastion, um, in the Panjway, Helmand River Valley. So we were coming back from the Helmand River Valley one late evening. It was probably about 30 minutes before dawn. And we, were, we took the short route home. So we we're flying over the Red Desert. And we could see the Panjway like up on the horizon. And there was tracers and RPGs. And there was just a massive firefight going on. And we're, we're like, we're trying to figure it out. We're, t- we're calling back to our talk. They're like, hey, can you find out what's going on in the Panjway? And like, no one could figure anything out. And we just kind of skirted along the Panjway. And as we got closer, just, it looked literally like Star Wars. It looked like what, like the opening days of the invasion of Iraq with tracers going everywhere and RPGs. And we couldn't tell who was who, because there were so many friendly locations. You couldn't tell what a friendly location was versus an enemy position. And it was, it was the most helpless feeling of not being able to help. Like, We have the capability, we're incredibly capable at what we do and we could do nothing. And I know there were Americans that were in those, those cops, the combat outposts all through the Panjway that night. And I know they had probably the most intense two hour firefight of their life and I could do nothing. And it was the hardest thing to go back and to like look out the left door and just see these streams of tracers and RPGs going back and forth and not being able to tell where the Americans were like, I hate bullies. Like I want to, if, you know, if there's a bully, I want to, I want to be right there and I want to get in the fight and I couldn't get in the fight. So if there was any Americans that were on the ground or allies or even Afghan allies that had the possibility of hearing this podcast, I'm sorry that I couldn't have done anything more that night. Um, I, I hope it all went well.
0: Chuck, thank you for, sharing that with us for this great conversation and uh for for i was gonna say thank you for your service but i have enough veteran friends that i know that doesn't always go (laughs) (laughs) but just thank you for for what you have already done and what you continue to do through stop soldier suicide
1: i really appreciate it Lindsay it's uh it's fun just to have a open conversation and uh to be able to connect with again i really appreciate all you do
0: That was Chuck Eastman, an Army veteran who is currently the Director of Strategic Partnerships for Stop Soldier Suicide. To learn more about Chuck and to hear additional episodes from this podcast, visit apologies-podcast.com. I'm Lindsay Whistle-Fenton. Thank you for being here for this episode of the Apologies Podcast. If you haven't already yet, be sure to subscribe to this podcast And then if you want to go an extra mile, it would be so helpful if you would rate and review this series on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Because of the algorithms and all the things, it helps other people find the podcast, which gives us a bigger pool of connections to make as we embark on this journey of healing. The Apologies Podcast is a production of Empathic Media, LLC. It's hosted, produced, and edited by me, Lindsay Whistle-Fenton with music by TaiZo Audio. If you have an apology you'd like to share and you'd like to be considered to be a guest on the Apologies podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out by going to apologies-podcast.com contact.